During the first half of the 20th century, the United States existed as two nations in one. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. The Supreme Court ruling in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, decreed that the legislation of two separate societies, one black and one white, was permitted as long as the two were equal. States across the North and South passed laws creating schools and public facilities for each race. These regulations, known as Jim Crow laws, reestablished white authority after it had diminished during the Reconstruction era. Across the land, blacks and whites dined at separate restaurants, bathed in separate swimming pools, and drank from separate water fountains. The United States had established an American brand of apartheid. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long... In the aftermath of World War II, America sought to demonstrate to the world the merit of free democracies over communist dictatorships. But its segregation system exposed fundamental hypocrisy. Change began brewing in the late 1940s. President Harry Truman ordered the end of segregation in the armed services, and Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. But the wall built by Jim Crow legislation seemed insurmountable. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in part one of our two-part series on the civil rights movement in America, we first look at the 1950s. In part two, simply enough, we look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Same goals, two vastly different approaches. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. The first major battleground in the civil rights movement was the schools. It was very clear by mid-century that southern states had expertly enacted separate educational systems. These schools, however were never equal. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, led by attorney Thurgood Marshall, sued public schools across the South, insisting that the separate but equal clause had been violated. In no state, where distinct racial education laws existed was their equity in public spending. Teachers in white schools were paid better wages, school buildings for white students were maintained more carefully, and funds for educational materials flowed more liberally into the white schools. States normally spent 10 to 20 times on the education of white students as they spent on African-American students. The Supreme Court finally had enough and decided to rule on this subject in 1954 in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka case. The verdict was unanimous. 
In a Supreme Court ruling, they said separate facilities are inherently unequal. This position read by Chief Justice Earl Warren. Warren worked tirelessly to achieve a 9-0 ruling. He feared any dissent might provide a legal argument for the forces against integration. The United States Supreme Court sent a clear message. Schools had to integrate. The North and the border states quickly complied with the ruling, but the Brown decision fell on deaf ears, particularly in the South. The court had stopped short of insisting on immediate integration, instead asking local governments to proceed with, quote, all deliberate speed in complying, end quote. Ten years after Brown, fewer than 10 percent of Southern public schools had integrated. Some areas achieved a zero percent compliance rate. And the ruling did not address separate bathrooms, bus seats, or hotel rooms, so Jim Crow laws remained intact but cautious first steps toward an equal society had been taken. It would take a decade of protest, legislation, and bloodshed before America neared truer equality. On a cold December evening in 1955, Rosa Parks quietly incited a revolution just by sitting down. She was tired after spending the day at work as a department store seamstress. She stepped onto the bus for a ride home and sat in the fifth row, the first row of the colored section. In Montgomery, Alabama, when a bus became full, the seats near the front were given to white passengers. Montgomery bus driver James Blake ordered Parks and three other African-Americans seated nearby to move to the back of the bus. Three of the riders complied. Parks did not. We shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. After Parks refused to move, she was arrested and fined $10. The chain of events triggered by her arrest changed the United States forever. In 1955, a little-known minister by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr. led the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. King studied the writings and practices of Henry David Thoreau and Mohandas Gandhi. Their teachings advocated civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance to social injustice. A staunch devotee of nonviolence, King and his colleagues, Ralph Abernathy, were part of a community organization, the Montgomery Improvement Association, MIA, which organized a boycott of the Montgomery buses. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, representing some uh, 44% of the population, 90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue 
until something is done. The demands they made were simple. Black passengers should be treated with courtesy. Seating should be allotted on a first-come, first-served basis, with white passengers sitting from front to back and black passengers sitting from back to front. On Monday, December 5th, 1955, the boycott went into effect. Montgomery officials stopped at nothing in attempting to sabotage the boycott. King and Abernathy were arrested. Violence began during the action and continued after its conclusion. Four churches, as well as the homes of King and Abernathy, were bombed. But the boycott continued. The MIA had hoped for a 50% support rate among African Americans, and to their surprise and delight, 99% of the city's African Americans refused to ride the bus. People walked to work or rode their bikes. Carpools were established to help the elderly. The bus company suffered thousands and thousands of dollars in lost revenue. And finally, on November 23, 1956, almost a year later, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of MIA. Segregated busing, they said, was declared unconstitutional, and city officials reluctantly agreed to comply with the court ruling. The black community of Montgomery had held firm in their resolve. Always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation is completely crumbled in Montgomery, we will be able to live with people as our brothers. We shall not be moved. I woke up this morning with my man The Montgomery bus boycott triggered a firestorm in the South. Across the region, blacks resisted moving to the back of the bus, and similar actions flared up in other cities. The boycott put Dr. Martin Luther King in the national spotlight and became the acknowledged leader of the nascent civil rights movement of the United States. With Ralph Abernathy, King formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. This organization was dedicated to fighting Jim Crow segregation. African Americans boldly declared to the rest of the country that their movement would be peaceful, organized, and determined. To modern eyes, getting a seat on a bus may not seem like a great feat, but in 1955, sitting down marked the first step in a revolution. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Not, not, long. not long. Because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yes, Three years after the Supreme Court declared race-based segregation illegal, a military showdown took place in Little Rock, Arkansas. What about you, sir? Do you think the college students will show up? If I got anything to do with it, they won't show up. Well, I think it's a breaking point of the school integration. I just don't uh, feel that they have a right to go to school with them. On September 3, 1957, nine black students attempted to attend an all-white Central High School. 
Under the pretext of maintaining order, Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus mobilized the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the students, known as the Little Rock Nine, from entering the school. After a federal judge declared the action illegal, Faubus removed the troops. When the students tried to enter again on September 24th, they were taken into the school through a back door. Word of this spread throughout the community, and a thousand irate citizens stormed the school grounds. This is Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas. Troops, which for nearly three weeks lined the sidewalk here in front of the high school under orders to keep the colored students out, have been replaced now from their orders to comply with the law, which means let the Negro students in if they come in. The police desperately tried to keep the angry crowd under control as concerned onlookers whisked the students to safety. The action was watched on television. President Eisenhower was compelled to act. Such an extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. This challenge must be met, and with such measures as will preserve to the people as a whole their lawfully protected rights in a climate permitting their free and fair exercise. Eisenhower was not a strong proponent of civil rights. In fact, he feared that the Brown decision could lead to an impasse between the federal government and the states. Well, now that very stalemate has come. The rest of the country seemed to side with the black students, and the Arkansas state government was defying a federal decree. The situation harkened back to the dangerous federal-state conflicts of the 19th century that followed the end of the Civil War. Just got a report here on this end that the students are in. On September 25th, Eisenhower ordered the troops of the 101st Airborne Division into Little Rock marking the first time United States troops were dispatched to the South since Reconstruction. He federalized the Arkansas National Guard in order to remove the soldiers from Faubus's control, and for the next few months, the African-American students attended school under armed supervision. The following year, Little Rock officials closed the school to prevent integration. But in 1959, the schools were open again, both black and white children were in attendance. The tide was slowly turning in favor of those advocating civil rights for African Americans. An astonished America watched footage of brutish white Southerners mercilessly harassing clean-cut, respectable, African-American children just trying to get an education. Television swayed public opinion toward integration. In 1959, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, the first such measure since Reconstruction. The law created a permanent civil rights commission to assist black suffrage. The measure, though, had little teeth and proved ineffective. But it did pave the way for more powerful legislation to come 
in the 1960s. Buses and schools had come under attack. Next on the menu, a luncheonette counter at Woolworths. And that concludes this episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I hope you'll join me for part two of our civil rights discussion, the 1960s. In the meantime, thank you for joining me in this moment of learning, and I look forward to seeing you right back here next time. <music>